And stay out, you filthy vagrants! Mina Montessario and Cadmus are hurled bodily through the palace gates of House Tereth and out into the street. They land hard, face down on the grimy cobbles, where they lie for a long moment, a steady rain beating down. A chill, brisk wind has come in from the east, an early sign of approaching winter. At last, they drag themselves to their feet, using one another to steady themselves. Something unspoken seems to have changed between them, a bond forged in shared trauma. Mina turns to Cadmus. You know, I never asked your surname. I no longer have one, the healer replies. We devotants divest ourselves of all trappings of our former lives when we join the Order. Not that I'm even sure I still am a member of the Order after my transgression. Very well, devotant Cadmus, Mina says lightly, taking his arm in hers. Would you do a young lady the courtesy of escorting her home? It would be my honour, Miss Montessario, Cadmus replies seriously, with a short bow. Those few passers-by who are still out in this foul weather stare at the filthy, battered pair hobbling together down the streets of Kairos, and they hurry nervously past, giving them a wide berth. Mina and Cadmus, streaked with blood and grime and oil, need to collapse with utter exhaustion and blood loss, are grinning ear to ear the whole way back to the missing link. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Mina and Cadmus discovered an exit from the endless underpipes far above the control chamber. But the massed ranks of Hydra Clan and the great water spirit they worshipped had no intention of letting our heroes leave alive. A running battle ensued as they climbed, and the adventurers just barely made it out with their lives. The hatchway led them into a basement, and from there into a place Mina seemed to know all too well, the palace of House Tereth. It's chaos and revolution here on The Lone Adventurer. Scene 17, which I'd planned to have close out the last episode, ended up being split between the end of that episode and the start of this one. Not to mention the fact that we went all MCU at the end of the last episode with a post credit scene. Absolute anarchy. The reason for this unprecedented shift from established protocols was simple. 
Halfway through scene 17, I ask the question, are they ejected from the palace? And in addition to the yes response, I got a random event. The focus was NPC negative for HydroClan, and the detail was guide messages. Linking those prompts with the previous portents of the pipe runners made sense, and was narratively satisfying to me. It really upped the sense of that group as a shadowy, sinister, deadly organisation. But cramming in all of the scene events and this very separate, remote nugget of story all together at the end of the last episode it just didn't seem to fit, and hence the looser approach of how that scene was presented. Anyway, after all that excitement, normal service is now resumed. So let's all have a cup of tea, calm down, and get on with the next scene. Chaos Factor is down to four. After some negotiation with a deeply suspicious Celia, Mina is able to secure a room for Cadmus at the missing link, and over the course of the next few days, the pair recuperate. Mina begins by taking a long, hot bath, followed by a sleep that lasts for 14 hours. The bed that had seemed lumpy and uncomfortable just a few days ago now seems like the absolute pinnacle of luxury. Clothes are found for Cadmus, who looks utterly transformed with the benefit of a wash and a shave. Although he is still quite underweight, he is wiry and tough, and his face has a certain craggy charm, shorn of its beard and mop of matted hair. Have you decided what you're going to do? Mina asks over lunch. Cadmus nods. Now that I am recovered, I must return to my orders as soon as possible, and let them know what has befallen me. They must be made aware of the dangers of the underpipes. Of course, Mina agrees, doing her best to hide her disappointment. After all she had told him of the machine cultists and of the threat posed by the visitor to House Montessario, she had hoped that perhaps he might consider joining her. But of course, this is not his fight. You have a life there. You must return to it, she says. And they will be able to help you come to terms with that terrible ordeal you suffered far better than I could, she thinks, though she does not say those words aloud. Cadmus has seemed uncomfortable speaking of his captivity, and she has not pressed him on the subject. Cadmus smiles and shakes his head. I think you misunderstand, Mina. I intend to return to the devotants to, to tell them what I know, and then tell them I am leaving the order. I owe you a debt. I can never repay, and you are alone, and in need. I could not walk away from you, even if I wanted to. Mina finds she can say nothing, and that she has something in her eye, and that her boiled beef is suddenly particularly interesting. With Cadmus gone, Mina throws herself back into her work. First she dissembles her pistol, and adjusts the relative power of the sigils engraved into the lock, stock, and barrel. Then she works on her collapsible shield, adding a series of runes around the edge of each plate, and finally she turns her attention to the damaged automaton, Scraps. She rebuilds the head, completely reroutes the flow of arcane energies throughout its body, and lays a series of complex protective spells into the inner casing. The sun has long since set by the time Cadmus returns. He looks worried, 
but Mina is too excited to notice. She also fails to notice that he is still wearing the borrowed clothes she found for him, rather than the orange robes of a devotant. I think I've cracked it, Cadmus. Look! She triggers a series of control runes, and the gleaming pile of mechanical parts stiffens, then begins to unfold, metal vertebrae in the spine clicking one by one into place. Arms extend to either side, steel fingers finding purchase on the ground. It stands, bipedal, the head lolling at first, then snapping to attention, yellow, glowing eyes staring fixedly at Mina. It works, Cadmus, it works! The metal man stands almost comically at attention, the barrel chest stuck out, skinny arms and legs with heels together, and the feet splayed out at a 45-degree angle. The posture triggers a powerful memory. Whether she has built it in this way subconsciously, or whether it is pure coincidence, the automaton's stance is exactly that of Barbican Randall, the faithful, gruff old house Montessario retainer. The Barbican, a kind of cross between butler, military adviser, and house chief of staff, had been with House Montessario since long before she was born, and was a constant presence throughout her childhood. He had shown the infant Mina, with winks, smiles, and kind words, that the militaristic, authoritarian image he projected to others was just that, an image. And it had been the Barbican who had cared for her in the aftermath of her father's death. She had always taken him for granted, this steadfast, loyal old soldier, and it shocks her now to feel the depth of love that his memory evokes. I can't call you scraps, can I? she murmurs, examining her creation. That name worked before you were activated, but you're not scraps anymore, are you? I think I'll call you Barbican. Mina, there is something I need to tell you. There is real anxiety in Cadmus's voice, but Mina is still too distracted to pick up on it. She fetches her coat and starts filling the pockets with various mechanical contrivances. You can tell me about it on the way, Cadmus. I've been thinking about it, and I've decided that I've got to talk with my boss, the Whisperer. I know the visitor threatened dire consequences if I did, but I have to share what we've learned so far. And who knows, maybe he was bluffing. Now that Barbican is working, and you're with me, I think we should risk it. Cadmus's look of concern deepens. And that's just it, Mina. The news is all through the houses, and so, of course, through the order. The spymaster of House Montessario is dead. So I asked if Cadmus wanted to go back to the Order, and I got a yes. It sounded as if Mina was about to lose this trusty sidekick she'd gained. Then I thought a bit more about the wording of what I'd asked, and I realised that I'd left myself a way out. I asked a follow-up question. Would he return to Mina? And I got exceptional yes. Not only was he coming back, but he was ditching the Order and swearing his loyalty to Mina. Result... Now, this could be seen as gaming the system a bit. The reason I think it was justified to ask the follow-up question that effectively questioned the first one is because it made sense in the narrative to ask. If he was going to leave, maybe he would come back at a later point. But this can easily be pushed too far and effectively break the GM emulator. 
It's a bit like asking the emulator, is there a huge pile of treasure and magical loot every time you enter a room? You will achieve your goal and your PC will quickly become madly wealthy and powerful, but you're cheating yourself by asking questions that are unreasonable in the fiction. There was one other important question that I asked. When Cadmus returned, I asked, does he know anything regarding Mina's quest? I rated this as very unlikely. I didn't think that the Order would necessarily have information that would be helpful, but the answer was exceptional yes. And when I posed an event question, I was given NPC negative, the Whisperer, adversity news. To me, this could only mean the Whisperer's death. This clearly changes things quite a bit. The thing I didn't mention before the start of the last scene was that I had chosen this point as a suitable milestone to level up Mina and Cadmus. They both go up to level 3, which is really the point at which Mina's Battlemaster Artificer build comes online. I'd considered starting the game with Mina at this level. It's where she becomes the character I'd envisaged her being. In fact, as a general preference, I tend to prefer starting all my PCs in D&D at level 3 minimum. That's typically the point at which their subclasses kick in and your character concept comes to life. Levels 1 and 2 in 5e feel a bit like training wheels levels. They're very low complexity, so new players can get a handle on the overall D&D ruleset without being too distracted by the complexities of their character. Ironically, they're also the levels at which it is most likely your character is going to get themselves killed due to lack of hit points, healing magic, and damage avoidance features. But, as I mentioned earlier, I decided to take the gamble of taking her through the early level funnel, where sudden, unpredictable death was a real possibility. And I'm kind of glad I did. That last encounter in particular had real peril, and she had limited options to manage it. It felt like a good step on her journey. From here on out, though, she should be a fair bit more resilient. But I suppose, by saying that, that's just me nailing on the likelihood that she, Cadmus and Barbican will get total party killed in the next combat encounter. We'll see. Two extremely important things happen for Mina with the move to level 3. First, she gets to use intelligence as her stat for firing her arcane pistol. All that foreshadowing about recoil was leading up to this opportunity to increase her attack and damage modifiers. And second, as we've just seen, she gets her Steel Defender. Steel Defender is another reason I picked this class and subclass for my solo adventurer. The action economy, that is, how many things the good guys get to do on their turn versus the number of things the bad guys get to do, is extremely important in 5e. The addition of an extra combatant, activated by a bonus action from Mina each round, helps redress the action imbalance that's inherent with such a small party. Like Cadmus, I'm not going to be doubling the hit points or damage for the defender. The focus of this story is Mina, after all. That does naturally mean that while Mina will be comparatively resilient, her companions are going to be weak and squishy, and keeping them alive could prove a full-time job for Mina. I've also realised that, up until this point, I've been cheating horribly. When I read the Battle Ready subclass feature, I realised that Mina had been using her pistol without the requisite martial weapons expertise. That means every pistol shot she fired up to this point in the story should have been made at disadvantage. 
Clearly, that would have probably had an enormous impact on her adventures in the underpipes. There's nothing I can do about it now, so I just have to chalk it up to experience, I suppose. I'm sure it's not the first, or the last, rule I'll get wrong on this journey. Let's take a quick look at the lists. Sadly, we need to remove Resolve Trouble with the Spymaster, and instead add Investigate the Whisperer's Death. I've added Barbican to my character list, and I've decided to leave the Whisperer in place for now. There's nothing to say that a character needs to be alive to be of interest in the story. Onwards then, to scene 19. Mina can't quite believe what she's just heard. As she tries to process the news, the potential implications fan out before her, like cracks spreading through ice. This could undermine everything. What happened? she asks. Do they know how he died? Cadmus nods gravely. I am told he was found in his office. Diseased. His body was ravaged by some form of plague. No one else was infected, apparently, and the suspicion is that this was a directed attack, a, a weaponized pathogen intended to kill the target in a particularly gruesome manner. Mina sits heavily. This is a message, she says shakily, and a very public one. This is a direct attack on House Montessario, and on its eyes and its ears, the House of Whispers. It feels like a declaration of war. In one single strike, this enemy has damaged our ability to fight back and has publicly exposed the house as weak, which will inevitably attract other predators. She thinks for a moment, working it through. But how did the news get out? Not only should the Whisperer have been safe from attack, but news like this should never have escaped from the House of Whispers. That can only mean one thing, Cadmus. The visitor was telling the truth when he said his people had infiltrated our organisation, which means both the attack and the leak must have come from within. Cadmus takes a seat also, nodding. Yes, I could see that makes sense, but how to respond? Mina has to confess she is stumped. Every lead she has tried to follow so far, from tracking the machine cultists to tracing the source of the infernal powder to uncovering the visitor's identity, have all drawn blanks. Clearly, the most pressing issue is the threat to House Montessario from an unseen foe. But how to identify them? Perhaps I've been going about this all wrong, she ponders. What if, instead of finding the visitor, I could bring him to me? Seeing Cadmus's quizzical look, she continues, When he came to the rookery, he said something like, My colleagues are always watching. Well, if that's true, maybe we can use it against them. Many, many hours later, Mina is forced to concede defeat. It seemed like a workable plan. Return to the rookery, which she assumed would be under surveillance, and then wait for the visitor or his agents to either make contact or try to kill her. An excellent plan, with only one tiny flaw. The visitor wasn't biting. She had sat in her erstwhile workshop, now stripped bare, waiting in vain and reflecting bitterly on how much she missed this ramshackle place she had once called home. At last, 
With dawn close to breaking, she calls out to Cadmus and Barbican, hidden in the rafters. It's no good. He's not coming. It's time to go. She's half expecting an attack to come on their return journey to the missing link, but the streets are deserted and she sees no sign of a tail. If the visitor really has her under observation, perhaps it is some form of magical scrying at work. A disturbing thought. There is only one place that she knows of that should, in theory, be impervious to magical surveillance. A place where perhaps they can get some answers. But she knows that place has been compromised. And she's uncertain what kind of welcome to expect in light of the machine cultist mission and her subsequent disappearance. Regardless, it is the only path that now remains open to her. Perhaps Cadmus, with his knowledge of healing and diseases, can uncover some clue as to the source of the attack. And if the house has been compromised, then perhaps it's the best place to track down her elusive foe. It's time to return to the House of Whispers. We had two short scenes there. In the first, Mythic told me what Cadmus told Mina that he knew of the Whisperer's cause of death, and that the event description was Release Illness. It looks like the Spymaster has been targeted with Fantasy Novichok. The rest was Mina extrapolating from what she knew. It wasn't just Mina who was stumped back there. I was really struggling for a while to figure out what Mina could do next. And then I got the bright idea of Mina presenting herself as bait in order to get the enemy to reveal themselves. Brilliant, right? Well, sometimes Mythic gets sulky, and no matter what you do, it just won't play ball. I mentioned earlier that it's important not to push the narrative too hard in particular directions by asking a series of questions, all seeking the same outcome. Well, in this case, apparently lacking other options, I pushed fairly hard. Mythic pushed right back. Was there anyone waiting at the rookery? No. Did anyone come to the rookery? No. Did anyone follow her when she left? No. Okay, Mythic, I can take a hint. Not that way, then. So that leaves the headquarters of the House Montessario spy network, the place where the Whisperer was whacked. The place that is apparently stuffed full of double agents. I can't quite figure out why it didn't occur to me to come here in the first place. In hindsight, it does seem blindingly obvious. Now, this can be one of the challenges of a solo RPG. With no other voices or ideas than your own in the mix, it can sometimes be challenging to think outside of the linear path you're following. You can get locked into one particular line of thinking and fail to see beyond it, a sort of one-person version of groupthink. I find whenever I'm struggling like this, both in solo RPGs and in any creative endeavour, the very best thing you can do is walk away and studiously look everywhere but at the problem. I'm reminded of this passage from one of my favourite books, Jerome K. Jerome's Silly and Sublime Three Men in a Boat. We put the kettle on to boil, up in the nose of the boat, and went down to the stern and pretended to take no notice of it, but to set to work to get the other things out. That's the only way to get a kettle to boil up the river. If it sees that you're waiting for it and are anxious, it'll never even sing. 
You have to go away and begin your meal as if you're not going to have any tea at all. You must not even look round at it. Then you will soon hear it sputtering away, mad to be made into tea. It's a good plan, too, if you're in a great hurry, to talk very loudly to each other about how you don't need any tea and you're not going to have any. You get near the kettle so that it can overhear you, and you shout out, I don't want any tea, do you, George? To which George shouts back, Oh, no, I don't like tea. We'll have lemonade instead. Tea's so indigestible. Upon which the kettle boils over and puts the stove out. My problem-solving brain is a bit like that kettle. When I hit an impasse and my head resolutely fails to make progress, I ignore the problem by taking the dog for a walk or cooking a meal or painting miniatures. And with the problem left ignored by my conscious brain, my subconscious cheerily toils away in the background until, presto, the solution is presented, all neatly tied up in a bow. I've decided to add both the underpipes and the House of Whispers to my characters list. Characters don't have to be people, they can be places, or objects of significance too. The chaos factor goes up to seven. Let's see what secrets and lies can be found in the House of Whispers. Let me do the talking, Mina advises Cadmus, unnecessarily, as she, Cadmus, and the smartly marching Barbican approach the steps of a nondescript but stylish townhouse, situated on the fashionable northeastern crossbridge near the very heart of Kairos. The House of Whispers has served as the headquarters of House Montessario spymasters down generations, a place of shadows, dust, and secrets. A place protected by powerful magical wards, laid down by the most puissant of the House's arcanists. In theory, one of the most secure buildings in the city. Mina reaches out to the door to knock, and it swings open. Well, that's not right. Hello? There's no answer. She steps inside, gesturing to the others to follow. The dingy hallway they enter is silent and still, the walls lined with paintings, hunting trophies and suits of armour. Mina calls out, Hello? Anyone? Nothing. She turns back to her companions. I don't understand. There should be... She's cut off by sudden movement at her feet. Look out, she cries, jumping back and off the thick pile hall rug that has just tried to tangle itself around her feet. Building countermeasures have been activated. She reaches for her pistol, but before she can pull it free, there is a massive impact in her back, and she has knocked to her knees back onto the rug. Before she can rise, two plate mail arms encircle her, holding her firmly in place. Not plate mail clad, she realises. She is being attacked by the empty suit of plate that has stood gathering dust in the hall on every visit she's ever made to the House of Whispers. Get out! Fall back! she yells, but it's too late. With an impact that can be felt through the floor, a massive stone figure, winged and taloned, lands in the doorway behind them. A stone gargoyle, one that has sat unmoving atop the building, just waiting to be called into service. Well played, Whisperer, part of Mina thinks. You kept your secrets close. The other, more pragmatic part is not quite so complimentary. The gargoyle hurls itself into Barbican's back and sings stone fangs into metal neck. Cadmus, retreating into the hallway, mutters words of prayer and motes of light surround the three of them. Mina can feel renewed confidence flowing through her. 
Okay, she calls out, new steel in her voice. If we can't flee, we... The rug she is kneeling on wraps around her, covering her face, pinning her arms, wrestling her to the ground. She can't see, she can't move, she can only dimly hear the sounds of battle. She struggles furiously, determined to free herself, but to no avail. But she must get free, she has to. Then the blows begin to land. The first knocks the wind out of her, leaves her gasping for breath. There is no breath to be had. She feels true fear for the first time. That animated armour is going to bludgeon her to death as she lies here, helpless. No, her companions will save her. She built Barbican for just this sort of... Through the smothering rug, she hears the sound of tortured metal, of arcane mechanisms pushed beyond tolerances, and her link to Barbican goes dead. Another blow, and another, and the binding grows tighter still, impossible to resist, crushing the life out of her. Every breath is an impossible battle, her heartbeat deafening in her ears. Mounting panic, and she realises this is it. There's no way out. And then everything fades to black. And it's over. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.